Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. And it's good for us to be able to return to our study in this 21st chapter of Revelation. It's been quite a long break since the last time that we were able to talk about this. Uh, We've had all the holidays and special messages, Lord's Supper last week, so we didn't get to get into our Revelation study. So I'm glad that we're able to get back to this and talk about this wonderful place that God has prepared for those that are saved. Those who have received salvation in Christ have a very special place awaiting for them when they die. And it's also good for us to remember that heaven is our home. Uh, The Christmas season really ought to make us uh, mindful of that because God sent Jesus into the world to die for us and it is by him and only by him that we're able to have life, have eternal life and able to go to the place that God has prepared for us. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen under the glory of God by us. So it is by Jesus Christ that we receive all of the blessings that God gives. He's everything to us. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I hope that's how each of you feel. That having Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything that you could ever have. Now there's some people that think that when you die, that there's there's really nothing good that comes out of death. They think about leaving family behind, leaving uh, what they've accumulated in this world behind. And so they, they think you just can't get anything. There's nothing good, no good way to view death. Many people think that way. I, I think back, um, I think it was in the month of October, just three, three months or three or four months ago, that uh, Steve Jobs died. And what I read about him was that he wasn't really a very contented person, not probably not the most contented person that lived. And uh, one of the articles that I was reading about him said that when he was young, that he became disappointed with Christianity. And so he searched for something else until he found Buddhism, and then he became a Buddhist. Now, I would say that he may have been disappointed in Christianity, and if he was, it wasn't the Christianity that we have in Scripture. That's a very different Christianity. There's no way that you could be disappointed in Christianity because Christianity is Christ. How could anybody ever be disappointed in Jesus? That's an impossibility, I think. And, and Buddhism, certainly, or any other religion of the world has nothing to offer us like Christ has to offer. And in these Scriptures, we, we see that Jesus does not disappoint. Faith in Christ will never lead us to disappointment. And speaking of the faith of Abel and of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, and of Sarah, the book of Hebrews says that they were persuaded of the promises of God and so that they left this world knowing what they would receive. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And that's the hope of Christians. When we die, we will be taken to this heavenly city. So our study in Revelation 21 is about that. The apostle John was allowed to see it and write about it and to let us know that the heavenly city is not a disappointment. 
but it far exceeds all of our expectations. Now, we're going to look at Scripture tonight. We're just going to read a a small portion of this passage, and then we'll go on and discuss the features of the New Jerusalem. But we're actually covering verses 9 through 21, and through four different messages prior to this one, we've covered many, many of these verses. But we're not going to read all of those. But once again, if you'll look at verse number 9, we'll read uh, 9 through 11. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now you'll notice in your outline tonight that I've actually started the outline with number six. And I'm not going to give you, uh, go back through everything that we talked about before because we've covered many, many of these verses here. But let me just give you kind of a quick rundown, just an idea of what we've been talking about through these verses. Uh, We began with the angel that spoke to John, the one that gives him this heavenly tour. And that angel reminds us that when we get to heaven, we'll be surrounded by all these heavenly creatures that God has created. Heaven will be filled with these majestic creatures called angels. In fact, as you enter into the city, at each of the 12 gates, there will be an angel there, uh, standing there to remind us that this is the city that is God's city, the city of God's glory. They also remind us of God's protection, that there is no evil that can ever enter there. Evil has been destroyed forever. The devil and all of his angels and all that followed him are now put away, nowhere to be found again, because they're in that place called the lake of fire. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but we had that several series of messages where we spoke about hell. I told you then that one of the the terrible aspects of going to hell is that people that go there are forgotten forever. As far as the mind of God is concerned, as far as their existence, it's like they don't exist. They're going to be there forever with God or God's people never thinking about them again. And then we've discussed the architecture of the city. These verses explain that, that heaven is a massive place. The New Jerusalem is shaped like a cube, 1,500 miles on each side. There is no natural light there. There is no artificial light there. But the light of it is supernatural. It's the glory of God that fills the New Jerusalem. It also has, in this massive city, room to accommodate all of the church in all of the ages and all people that have believed in in God throughout all of the ages since God created Adam and Eve. Now, this place is a multi-layered city that has enough room to receive all of these. More than just elbow room, there's plenty of space in the New Jerusalem for all that God will save. Then at the entrances of these, of the of the city are these twelve gates that are made of twelve pearls, and those gates pass through the wall of the city that's made of diamonds. It stands on twelve foundations that are made of precious gemstones, and in those foundations are the names of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And since the home or heaven is the home of of God's people, the home of the church, then it's fitting that these foundation walls would be built upon the foundation of the church. That's what the apostles are. They they are they are the faithful apostles that witnessed and, and by their witness, by their efforts, by their work, 
They spread the gospel throughout the world, and heaven is populated because of the gospel that went out from those 12 men that Jesus chose. So this is truly a magnificent city. It's not one that will disappoint. And so there's no reason to be upset at leaving all of the world's goods behind because the wealth of this city is so vast that no one can really fathom the value of it. So that's just sort of a quick rundown of some of the verses that we've discussed thus far. Now tonight we're going to finish this part of the discussion in chapter 21 with three more observations. Number six on your listening sheet this evening is the Almighty in the city. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. One of the prominent features of every ancient city was a temple, or more than one temple. I remember several years ago when uh, we were in Italy, that we went to Pompeii. That's the city that was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius in eruption. I think it was 79 AD, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, you go there, and, and this, this eruption of Mount Vesuvius was so sudden that the people were unable to get out of the place, and this ash that rained down on them from that volcano just literally froze people in their places, froze the entire city. So they came back, of course, many, many years later, and they excavated all of this out. And you, you go in there, and you can see the ruins of temple after temple after temple of all these that were made to these false gods. And that's the way it was in, in, in the ancient cities that John was acquainted with, that, that every city that you went into had a temple or temples. For instance, in uh, the Greek city of Athens, uh, you go there today and you still see the ruins of the Parthenon, and that is a temple that was built to the goddess um, Athena. And uh, that temple still stands there, at least the, the ruins of it are still there, just gives you an idea of the magnificent temples that people people built, and you found those in these ancient cities. There was also a temple in Ephesus. It's part of the problem that, that Paul encountered in, Ephesus, in, uh, excuse me, in Acts chapter 19, where there was a great riot there in, in Ephesus, and that was because Paul upset the religious worship there. They were worshiping at the temple of Diana, and that was a temple that was a huge temple, magnificent temple, and that was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So no matter where you went in the ancient world, there were always cities with temples to different gods. The Greeks and Romans had them. You even go back before the Greeks and Romans, you find the Egyptians had their temples. Uh, in Canaan, there were temples. You remember the story of how that Samson uh, was brought into the temple of the god Dagon, the god of the Philistines. And, and there Samson was brought to the central pillars of that great temple. And then when God restored his strength, he, he pushed those pillars apart or grabbed them however he did it. But he brought that entire temple down upon the for, false worshipers of this god Dagon. So you would think that when John sees the heavenly city, this is something that really stands out in his mind that there is no temple there. That's peculiar. There's a peculiar absence of a temple in the New Jerusalem. Well, I would ask why. Why does God not have a temple in heaven? Well, first, because there is no need of a temple. This city is different from any that John had seen because of that absence of this notable characteristic of the cities at its time. So this is very noticeable. And this scripture that we're reading here is very much different than any other place in scripture. 
And that's because if you read the Old Testament, there was need for a tabernacle that served the same purpose as the temple before the temple was built. That was needed. And so Moses constructed this portable uh, meeting place that God had with his people. That was the tabernacle. And then, of course, later on, Solomon built a permanent structure for worship, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. And then when you come into the New Testament times, at the time of Jesus, the uh, temple was still prominent during his earthly ministry, and Jesus respected the temple. He respected the special significance that it had for God's people, and that's why Jesus went into the temple. And on two occasions, he cleansed it because there were these people there that had desecrated the place by cheating the people in the sale of sacrificial animals. And then when Jesus died and arose from the dead, the apostles made the temple there in Jerusalem a regular stopping point on their preaching tours. Then you find Paul going into the temple. Uh, this, uh, you remember the story of him in, in the book of Acts, how he attended the feast at Pentecost by going to the Jewish temple. Later on, of course, that led to his arrest and, and finally to his imprisonment in Rome. But the symbolism of the temple in the early New Testament times was beginning to die out. And, of course, the temple was no longer needed because of the death of Christ. And so in A.D. 70, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And what you don't find in the New Testament is a mandate for rebuilding that temple. You never find the apostles talking about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. You don't find anything there about them raising money to make an effort to do such a thing. And that's because there was no need or there is no need for a temple at the present time. And why is that? Well, it's because that in the New Testament there is actually a new temple. Only the temple is not a physical structure. Instead, the body of every individual Christian has become the temple of the Almighty God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all of us, as the people of God, we are God's temple. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that our bodies are God's temple. He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That ought to cause Christian people to give great pause at some of the things that we do with our bodies, some of the activities that we do, and some of the things that we think about, and so on, because we are God's temple, his holy temple. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, an interesting part of this is that when you see the word for temple in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that is not the same word that's used when referring to a physical temple. And in Revelation 21, that word doesn't match the word that's used for a physical temple. In fact, it's the same word that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So the idea of a temple in both of those places is the same. There is no need of a physical structure in heaven because there we have the presence of God. And we are in such intimate contact with God 
that we don't need bricks and mortars to, and mortar to separate us from from him in any way. There is no holy of holies there that is guarded or veiled by a uh, or blocked off by a veil that keeps people from passing through it. The veil was torn in two, and so there's no need for that. We have special intimate contact with God. And so that's really the sense that we have in Revelation 21. We live in the unveiled, matchless majesty of the glory of God, and so there is no need for the temple. And so in that sense, at least, the entire city, and we who are the children of God included, become the temple of God. Well, if you've been with us in our study of Revelation, uh, especially several chapters that if you have at least attended some of that, then you would probably recognize that there's a bit of a problem with this because there was at one time a temple in heaven. Now, I'm I'm not really speaking of the past. There is a temple in heaven right now, as a matter of fact. And uh, when God told Moses to build the tabernacle in the Old Testament, remember what he said to him? He said, I want you to build it after the pattern of things that are in heaven. The book of Hebrews tells us about that. Uh, Hebrews shows us that what Moses built corresponds to something that was present in heaven. We read in Revelation chapter 8 also about an altar that's there. There There are golden censers. These are things that were used in tabernacle and temple worship. In the 11th chapter of Revelation, this is very clearly stated, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in the temple the Ark of the Testament. That's the Ark of the Covenant. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Then we take that a step further. Hebrews says that Christ took his own blood into the holy place that's in heaven. Hebrews 9 says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once unto the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, that would be somewhat confusing to us to see in the 11th chapter, it says there's a temple in heaven, to see the articles of furniture that are there, altar, Ark of the Testament, the censers that are used, to find out that Christ goes into heaven and presents his blood in the holy place. How can we now say there is no temple in heaven? Well, what John sees is the new Jerusalem. And what we really need to recognize that what he actually sees in Revelation chapter 21 is the final state of heaven. Heaven is a little bit different right now than what John than what happens in this in this eternal or the final eternal state of it. So so when when uh, John is able to see this, then he sees this beyond the time that we're living now, and he sees the New Jerusalem come down, and there is no longer any temple there. There is no necessity for the temple. But there will come a time when there will be another temple that's built upon the earth. In fact, I think there's going to be two more temples. There will be a temple built during the tribulation time. It's one of the ways that the Antichrist cements his uh, league uh, with with the Jews and draws them in and deceives them by allowing them to build a temple. And then, during the thousand-year reign, the millennial reign of Christ, there will be a temple built. A millennial temple will be built. And at that time, 
uh, oddly enough, some of the sacrifices are going to be restored. And God has his purpose for all of that, the certain symbolisms that go along with that. But now, or, or at least, in, or rather, when I say now, I'm talking about in this scripture. In this scripture, there is no need for a temple of God. That That has all passed away. So there won't be a new structure on, on, on the new heaven, in the new heaven, or on the new earth, when God recreates it all, there will not be a physical temple that will be there. Instead, we are in the transcendent glory of God that fills all of heaven and earth, and we all become the temple of it. Now, going back to verse number 3, the scripture says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So we actually live in the temple of God. We, we don't go to worship there. We live in an eternal state of worship. Now, secondly, there's also no need of light. And this is what I referenced earlier. There's no need of a natural light or of an artificial light. Verse 23 says the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. The tabernacle had light. There was a need for light there. That light was symbolic of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. The, uh, te- the temple also had these golden lampstands just like you found in the tabernacle. And... Uh, the uh, oil that was used in those lamps, that was symbolic of the Holy Spirit, which is the enabling of Christ to shine as a light to the world. But there is no world. There, is no, there are no unsaved people, and there's no need for Christ to shine in the light that way. There's no one to be saved when we get to heaven. Everyone there is already saved. And so there's no need for that type of light there. Now, some have taken verse number 23 to mean that there is no longer a sun or a moon, But this verse doesn't actually say that. It just says that there's no need for them. And so some commentators have taken one of the other positions here. Either there is a sun and a moon or there's not a sun and a moon. But either way, if there is, the light of the glory of God eclipses all of that. There's no need for a light for the such as the earth going around the sun to have light from it and the keeping of time that's associated with that. None of that's needed because we're in an eternal state where there is no time. And then since there is no night, then why would you need the moon? Why do you have the moon if there is no night? You know, that kind of reminds me of something that Aiden said the other day. He noticed that the uh, sun was shining. Of course, it was daytime. The sun was shining. But as you sometimes see... You can see the moon during the daylight. And he said he couldn't process that properly. The sun and the moon shining at the same time. So he said, God needs to fix that. So in heaven, we don't have any need of those. Now, let me call your attention to uh, one other aspect that we need to look concerning this. And that is there's no need of our work. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Now, I want you to see there the emphasis that's put upon the Lamb. Now, God exists as a, as a trinity, but we're never to forget that it is the work of the Son of God that brings us to this place called heaven. Scripture always focuses on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's the personal manifestation of God. Now that doesn't in any way diminish the work of the other part of the Trinity. It doesn't say that 
the Father and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to Jesus Christ or inferior to him. In fact, we know that's not true because when Jesus came to this world, he said, I came here to do the will of my Father. He willingly subjected himself to what the Father had given him to do. But the real emphasis throughout Scripture always, when it comes to salvation, is upon the work that Jesus Christ came to do. He, he in that sense, is the most prominent person in the Trinity as far as salvation is concerned. And there's no work for us to do in heaven because Christ has done it all. And Christ has made it possible for God to give us his grace as a free gift. We never earn anything because of what we do. We, we can never meet a standard, the standards that's been set by God. That standard is perfection. And Jesus Christ is the only perfect person that's ever lived. And so it's his perfection by which we enter heaven. And that perfection is appropriated to us by faith. And that makes it all the more puzzling, I think, why someone like Steve Jobs said that he tried Christianity, but he found it to be disappointing. And I would have to say that he did not have faith. What he tried to do was to approach Christianity, as so many people do, trying to bring something of their own into it, trying to be righteous or good in the eyes of God by still holding on to some false idea that we could actually be pleasing to God in our own flesh. God is never going to accept that. And that kind of Christianity is always doomed to failure because it's not real Christianity. So if you're seeking heaven by your own righteousness, then what you would need to do is what Steve Jobs did. That's bail out of that religion for sure because you can never satisfy God. So Steve Jobs did not, did not reject Christianity. He rejected something that he'd substituted for real Christianity and then he put in its place an equally false faith. And so despite all the little gadgets that he made and the cleverness that he had, he was deficient, he was a failure, and the only thing that really counts, he took an out, a bite out of the apple and it doomed him. And maybe you could look at that that way. You see that little apple on your computer for those of you heathens that own Apple computers and, and uh, on, on your iPhones and things like that, that bite out of the apple. You just remember Steve Jobs didn't believe in Jesus Christ and that apple doomed him. Well, we go on now to number seven, and that's the access to the city. Verse number 24 says, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now, I've made a point here repeatedly as we've studied about the New Jerusalem that this city is the home of the Bride of Christ. Now, that point has been made clear to us in both verses two and verse 2 and verse 9. The New Jerusalem is closely connected with the Bride. And so I, can, I continue, or I maintain to believe that the city is her home. And that means that it does not belong to the saints of the Old Testament. It does not belong to martyrs in the New Testament. But this is peculiarly, that is the New Testament during the tribulation period, but this is peculiarly the, the, the city of the church. And that's because the church has a very special relationship with Christ that others don't have. Israel is never called the bride of Christ. The tribulation martyrs are not the bride of Christ. The bride is the church of the living God. 
Now, Ephesians 5 makes that clear. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So the church has a very special relationship to Christ. What does that mean? That Christ doesn't love those who have been saved, but yet they never became a part of his bride? Well, I don't think that there's going to be any jealousy in heaven. I don't think that people are going to be disappointed there. I think that uh, Christ loves all that he has saved, and he loves them for the peculiar position that they have in his family. They represent different parts of his family. So they're close to him, and he cares for them as well. And I don't think that anybody that reaches the eternal state will not be supremely happy wherever God has chosen to put him. But there is a difference as far as living in the New Jerusalem. The bride lives there, and all the others may visit there. They can come into the city, but they don't actually live there. Now, let me talk to you about two groups that have a a special relationship to Christ, and they have a different relationship, though, to this city and to the bride of Christ. First would be Israel's relationship to the city. Israel does have a very special place in God's heart. I know there are many people that don't think so, that say that God is through with Israel, but Israel still has a very special place in God's heart. And the Apostle Paul pointed that out to Gentile believers in Romans, And after he spoke about the circumcision of the heart, and that can be had by anyone who believes in Christ, that there is an objection raised that if people, if if it doesn't take physical circumcision such as the Jews had in order to become the people of God, to be saved, and if anyone can have the circumcision of the heart, then what need is there for Israel? Why does God have this separate, distinct people set off by physical circumcision? Well, again, if that's the type of circumcision that can't make you a true Christian, then why does God have any need for the Jews? Well, Paul understood that there would be objection raised about that, and uh, Paul vigorously defended the Jews. He disputes that God is through with them. In, In the third chapter, he says, What advantages then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, that's an answer to the argument that I just just told you about. He says, Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So Israel's advantage is that they are the nation that God chose to work with and to commit his laws unto. This is the nation that God chose to bring his son into the world. And the laws that God gave to Israel were critical for our salvation. They're very critical for us. Now, we must have righteousness. We must have a perfect righteousness in order to enter into the presence of God. And the Messiah kept all the laws of God perfectly so that he earned righteousness that can be given to us. Now, what we need to understand is there are two types of righteousness in God. There's what we call intrinsic righteousness. That is a righteousness that is a part of God's nature. That's one of his attributes. That's not something that God gives to someone else. That is a part of his very own being. 
So we can't receive that kind of righteousness. So God did not choose then to make us holy by infusing his righteousness into us, but rather we're made holy based upon the righteous merits of the works of Jesus Christ. Now that type of righteousness was earned by Christ, fulfilling all of the demands of the law for us. Now, sometimes people wonder, does the law of God, do the commandments of God have anything at all to do with our salvation? And they come to the conclusion that because of grace, the law is not important for Christians any longer. We never think about the law any longer because of grace. Well, we ought not to do that because it will lead us to false conclusions about God's law. The law of God actually plays an integral part in our salvation, and it does in this way. Perfect obedience has always been required by God. God has never relaxed that requirement that we have perfect obedience. But what God has done through his grace is to permit the perfect obedience of Christ to replace our imperfect obedience. We can never keep the law perfectly. So in his grace, he has allowed what Christ did to substitute for what we can't do. So we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ by faith in him. So Christ, what we call his active obedience, that's his active uh, keeping of God's law, practicing God's law. God has allowed that to stand good for our, our imperfect obedience. So in that sense, and you need to understand it very clearly, don't get confused about it. In that sense, our salvation is by the law, not by our efforts at keeping the law, but what Christ has done by his perfect obedience. So grace allows that perfect obedience to substitute again for our imperfect obedience. Now you'll notice that when the entrance to the new Jerusalem is described in verse number 12, it says that the city had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So Israel is honored in the new Jerusalem. It has the names of the 12 apostles inscribed into the pearly gates. We come into the city through Israel because in turn we come through Christ who came from Israel. So the entire world has been blessed because of this nation Israel. And so I think it would be good for the millenaries and the post-millenaries to see or who think that there's no future for Israel to understand this, that, that God honors Israel in the millennial kingdom they will be honored. The millennial kingdom features Israel. And so the new Jerusalem honors Israel. It's the nation that blessed us all because Christ came into the world through them. But Israel does not own this city. Israel will come into it, but they'll not live there. Now, I think that Israel is going to live uh, on the new earth that's been created. Israel didn't live in the tabernacle. They didn't live in the temple. They came there for worship, but that was not their dwelling place. So I think they're going to be on the new earth, and they'll have access to come into the city as they please, but they are not the owners of the city. So I can see Israel doing this, that, you know, in the Old Testament, it tells us there about the tabernacle, and there was a special placement of the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle. There were three tribes that encamped on each side of the tabernacle. They had their own peculiar place. And in the, in the New Jerusalem, there will be three names of the tribes inscribed at each of those four gates on each side. So I can see Israel, uh, the, the tribes of Israel coming into that holy city through those gates that are inscribed with their particular name. 
So that's, the, that's Israel's relationship to the city. Then there's another relationship, and that's the Gentile relationship to the city. If you'll notice verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honor into it. Then verse 26, And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There the Greek word for nations is one that refers to all non-Jewish people. And so I think that it's talking here about Gentile nations that were uh, peoples that were saved during the Old Testament period and some that were saved during the church age and some saved during the tribulation, but they did not become a part of the church. Now, if you think about this particular thing, that has become a real sore spot for many people because that interpretation would mean that there are some Christians in the present who are not actually a part of the church. If you believe in universal invisible church theory or if you believe in in universal visible church theory, then you would have a problem with this because in both of those instances, they view all believers as being a part of the church. But I don't think the scriptures teach that. I believe that the church is local and visible and that it is possible to be saved and yet not be a part of the church. The church is peculiarly the body of Christ. It's in a given locality. The church does not exist in unassembled pieces. Think about that for a minute. Do you, do, you, you could, do you ever meet anybody or think you would find somebody, a policeman or whatever, and he goes out here and, and they're searching for a murder or whatever and they find a, a leg over here somewhere. Across town they find an arm. In some place somebody stashed away an eyeball. And the police say, we found the body. Well, no, they didn't find the body. They found body parts. That's not a body. And this is really what the universal invisible church theory Uh, puts forth to us, advances to us, that the body of Christ could be unassembled pieces all over the world. I don't see it that way. I don't see the, the New Testament talking about a body like that. The body of Christ is when the church comes together just like we have right here. And there's a body of Christ here in this local church. And another local church, when they meet, they are the body of Christ in that locality. So we are assembled. That's when we become the body of Christ. Now, What the scripture says here is that the nations uh, will bring their honor and glory into it. These are not Jews. These are the Gentiles. They're saved and they're able to come into the city and they bring the glory of their salvation into it. So God saves people from all nations. He's not a respecter of persons, just like we read in the book of James this morning. And so everybody that's saved, whether Jews or Gentiles, will have access to the New Jerusalem. Now, in effect, this is saying that all the racial and ethnical divisions that are present upon the earth now, things that keep us separated from one another, and we have those kinds of divisions all over the world where there's one Christian group that, that knows uh, the knows Christ in salvation, and then you have another one over here, and they are ethnically different, they are racially different, and so these people separate from one another and don't have anything to do with each other. That happens all over the world. But in heaven, it won't be like that. There are no racial divisions, no ethnic divisions, no economic divisions. Everybody, uh, everybody is one people of God in that place. So all of that division is going to be gone in heaven. At the birth of Jesus, the shepherds were told by the angel of the Lord, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. 
Simeon looked into the face of the Christ child, and he said, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And I think that heaven is the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of those scriptures. And we can say it very simply in another way, that Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Everyone can come to him. So all of the saved are going to have access to that city. No one will be shut out of it. Heaven is a place of eternal day, so there's no need to shut the gates at night. So all will be able to come there. Now one final thought, and we'll be through for this evening. Number eight on this listening sheet is the absent from the city. Verse 27, And there shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, folks, there is just a wealth of information in that verse. We can look back at verse number 8, and there is a listing there of all that could defile the city. There's a list there of the types of people that won't be there, fearful, unbelieving, murderers, sorcerers, and so on. And um, if you want more explanation of that, then I'll refer you to the sermon that we preached on uh, the eighth verse for an explanation of that. So none of those people are going to be there. Those are defiled people. And uh, if you let anybody that's defiled into the New Jerusalem, then it would defile the city. That's why God keeps them out. So the unclean are not going to enter there any more than the unclean were able to enter into the tabernacle or into the temple. So the ones that get into the New Jerusalem are those that are not defiled. So what does it take not to be defiled or to be undefiled? Well, that's a big question big question that would take us a long, long, long time to answer. What does it take to be undefiled? And to answer that question, you have to start out way before you and I were born. You have to go back before God ever created the first man or woman. Before that time, God had a plan in his mind, a covenant between him and the son Jesus that he would save his people. He knew where they were. He knew who they would be. He knew what they looked like. He knew when they would be born. And before anything ever happened, he chose them and planned to come to earth to redeem them. Scripture tells us that in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse number 3. They're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, the reason I bring this up in this particular place is because that sort of puts the last piece of garnish on this glorious spectacle of heaven. We've spoken about why these people are there. They are there because of the Lamb. And you notice the scripture says these are people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we keep seeing this emphasis on Christ over and over again. They are in the Lamb's book of life. And in chapter 20, it tells us everyone absent from the Lamb's book of life will be in hell. They're not redeemed. Chapter 13, verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8, tells us that these names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't know what you do with those statements of Scripture, but simply believe them. It's like we talked in the, in the message this morning. There are certain paradoxes. There are certain doctrines that we can't fully resolve because we don't have enough capacity in our minds to understand all that God does. But this is part of that. And you can make all the arguments that you want to against it, but it's much, much simpler just to take, I think, Gamaliel's advice. This was in Acts chapter 5. He said, If it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. 
lest happily you be found even to fight against God's word. Fight against God, rather. So this is God's word. We might not understand it all, but he says it, so we believe it. The work of salvation began before we were born. And the reason it's stated this way in Scripture, so it tells us with no uncertain terms that there is nothing that we do to obtain salvation. It's not by what we do. God does it all so that the Lamb receives all the glory and honor for our salvation. He did it all. So we're chosen in him. Then we're washed from our sins in his blood. So it's by him and him alone that we'll be in heaven. Now, is it possible to be disappointed in Christ? I don't think so. When I read this description of the new Jerusalem given here, this is the home that God has prepared for his people. When I see all of this, I just do not think it is ever possible to be disappointed in Jesus. What a wonderful promise that he's given us. A new home in this new place called the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you, Lord, for these great scriptures that we've read and the time that we've been able to spend over these last several weeks talking about heaven. And we have more to come as we uh, begin looking at the interior of heaven, things that are there, prominent features of that city as we get into our next week's lesson. But Lord, we just think about this wonderful place that you have prepared for us. We are so unworthy. We were lost. We were undone. We were, we, we do not deserve anything that you give to us. And then to think that not only have you saved us, but you prepared this place for us that is far beyond human imagination. Uh, we, just, we just stand in awe of the great God that you are and thank you for your great salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, the Lamb of God, he's the one who does it all for us and we thank you for that. Bless as we sing tonight. Bless your people. Thank you for the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.